So please let yourself sit in a way which is comfortable, at ease. Over the past weeks, there have been a variety of talks or teachings on topics such as impermanence, compassion, relationship as spiritual practice, mindfulness and attention. Tonight I'd like to speak kind of simply about a topic Um, I'll call all you need to know. And with the person who turned the light off in the back, please turn it back on, because it's nice to be able to actually see people as well as have light just up here. A story that I've written some years ago, some of you may have read. There was a woman who came to see me in Western Massachusetts who'd done some Buddhist meditation practice at the center we have there, the Insight Meditation Society, Um, lived in Amherst and was part of the healing community. Her husband was a, a physician and they were very much connected with the whole spiritual, um, kind of circle in Western Massachusetts, quite active. And her husband got, uh, a relatively fast-growing form of cancer and died in a matter of weeks. It was terrible and it was a shock. And many, many friends gathered around her and brought food and nurturance and care for her and for her children. Did all kinds of special blessings and services in about... mm, Two weeks after he had died, or three, she ran into a dear friend um, who said, you know, I don't know if you, if you know this, but um, those of us in the Christian community, there was a big community of uh, mystical Christianity that was nearby that they'd participated in. We've been praying for your husband and because uh, uh, we love him dearly. And we just want to tell you, I want to tell you, that he is all right, I know he is, because I have this whole vision of him being with the ascended masters, and there was this whole wonderful vision of light. And she thought, well, that's reassuring, that's very nice. Um, Until a couple of days later, another friend in the um, Vajrayana Tibetan community came up, where they'd also practiced, and said, you know, a number of us are doing the 49-day recitations of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and um, it's now, you know, 18 days or whatever, and I've seen him, and he's really fine. He was entering the green realm of, you know, Moga City Buddha, or whatever particular one they said, and, and I know just where he is, and everything is wonderful. That was a little less reassuring and more confusing. So she called 
a man who had been one of their closest friends and was a, a master in the Sufi tradition because um, she was upset by this and was going to tell him this story. But before she could tell him, he said, Oh, oh, I'm so glad you called. I've been meditating you know, on your husband and I've seen he has already um, begun to take his new birth in the womb of someone in Washington, D.C. He'll be born as a girl and I had this whole vision. <laughs> So this was um, more confusing. <laughs> and finally she came to see me. <laughs> Maybe a further mistake. <laughs> and she told me the whole story. And I looked at her after I listened to all of that. And I said, so there are these different belief systems of what happens when you die and where you will go and what to believe. I said, and then what is left for you is not so much to sort out between those different belief systems, but to ask yourself in the deepest way possible what it is that you know that is so true, that is absolutely true for yourself. Um, I don't want to add some other story about where he is or if he is or what happened, but what do you know in yourself, independent of all of those different teachings that you can follow, no matter what the Sufis or the Christians or the Tibetans or whoever it is happen to say? And she says, through all this, the main thing I've learned is that what matters to me is that I love, that I love him wherever he is, that I love the people with I'm, that I'm with. And I replied, maybe that's enough. These are spiritually confusing times. You go into one of the many big spiritual bookstores around Shambhala in Berkeley or Open Secret or all these different ones, and there are rooms filled, tens of thousands of books of mystics and shamans and yogis and chassids and Sufi and Hindu and Christian masters and chakras and auras and cleansing and light and, you know, and every kind of Buddhism, Zen Buddhism and Pure Land Buddhism and different schools of Vajrayana and Vipassana and Dzogchen and Advaita. What to believe in all that? I mean, you go in and you get a headache when you look at like, am I supposed to read all this stuff and figure it all out or where should I start? Hmm. A fool went to the rabbi and said, I know I'm a fool, rabbi, but I don't know what to do about it. Please advise me what to do. Ah, my son, exclaimed the rabbi in a complimentary way, if you know you're a fool, then surely you're not really one. Good start. But then why does everyone say I'm a fool, continued the man. The rabbi regarded him thoughtfully for a moment. If you yourself don't understand that you're a fool, he chided him, but only listen to what people say, then surely you are a fool. <laughs> so I would ask you, as I asked her, what do you actually know in your own experience? What do you know so deeply that even if the Buddha and the Dalai Lama and your mother and everybody else all said, no, it's not true, you would kind of look them back in the eye and say, yes, I know this absolutely, no matter who says it. 
that this is true. Sometimes it's just a few things. In giving this talk, I've had conversations in the past with a, a few people, a circle around. I ask them, well, what is it that you know? Someone will raise their hand and say, I know that everything is impermanent. Everything, except maybe my delusion, they'd say sometimes. But basically, everything seems to change. Or someone else would raise their hand and say, whatever belief I have, I know that there's another opinion about it. Or this world is made up of light and dark and sweet and sour and up and down and pleasure and pain. It's made up of the play of these opposites of gain and loss and birth and death. Or there is only now, there is only this moment. And then there are thoughts which are about past and future, but there's only now. So these are a few of the things that certain people said, this I know, I really know deeply. Now how do we know these things in our hearts? We know them from repeated, direct experience. Trusting our experience, examining this very fathom-long body and mind that the Buddha called it, within which all of the truths of spiritual life can be revealed. One of the most famous dialogues that uh, come from the time of the Buddha in those texts was a man who had traveled a long distance because he heard there was a great teacher named the Buddha and he wanted to see him and speak with him and he came all the way into the monastery and he said, where's the Buddha? I have some pressing questions to ask. And they said, "He's the master has gone out with his bowl to have people offer to collect alms food. So he went out of the monastery gate and through the streets of the town until he found the Buddha who was there standing with his bowl. People were offering food. And he said, are you the Buddha? And the Buddha said, yes, I am. He said, then please teach me. I've come a very long way. And the Buddha said, wait, my friend. Wait till I finish alms round and then we'll go back together to the monastery and I'll sit down with you and answer all your questions. And the man said, no, no, I've come a very long way and I have no idea how long I'll live or you live. I'm here and I want you to answer. And the Buddha said, let's wait just a few more moments. Let's finish. He said, no, no, I need to know now. Can you just give me the gist, the essence of your teachings? When you ask so persuasively, the Buddha said, all right, bahia. In this way must you train yourself. In the scene, there should be just the scene. In the heard, just what is heard. In the sensed, that is felt and felt through the body, just what is sensed. And in the imagined, just what is imagined. That simple. Not I or other or good or bad or what should be or he did or she did, but just the direct experience of what is there to be seen and heard and felt and sensed. We add so much to it. We add a whole sense of who we are. We create and fabricate a sense of self as if we were separate from others, as if we weren't part of the interdependent arising of life. And then we add all our judgments and values. 
And the Buddha said, if you want to find freedom, begin to notice the direct experience of life, sights, sounds, smells, and tastes, the direct perceptions, the arising of feelings and thoughts. Zen master and student walking in the garden. Student says to Zen master, Zen master, teach me about enlightenment. Master points, see that bamboo over there, how tall it is? Yes, says the student. And see those over there, see how short they are? Yes, says the student. That is all, says the master. (laughs) That simple. It's called suchness in one language, the direct experience of what is without all the things that we add to it. Now, I would posit that these few things, these simple knowings, all things change, or that there's up and down and light and dark and birth or death, or the direct experiences of our senses may well be enough for our spiritual life. I remember when I was teaching in the city in San Francisco, doing a benefit for, ah, what fun, the kids. (laughs) Nice night to go out, the moon is probably coming up, it's great. Great. Um, It'll be wonderful to have overnight retreats here when we start next summer, because it's beautiful out in these hills after dark, see all the stars. So I was teaching in San Francisco a benefit for the Zen Center Hospice together with Brother David Stendhal Rast. We'd done a few of these over the years. And one night we were teaching about Buddhist and Christian teachings on grace and compassion and wisdom, different ways. And partway through the evening, after Brother David was offering some of the teachings that come from Jesus, he asked the group a question. I thought it was quite a wonderful question. He says, by what authority does Jesus give these teachings to others? By what authority um, does does he offer these teachings? And people had all different imaginings by the authority of his father or by the fact that he is divine or whatever there. And Brother David said, no. He said, if you listen to the words of the scriptures in the Bible of the teachings, it often is preceded by a phrase or an implied phrase that goes, who among us does not see the lilies of the field that neither you know, toil. Who among us um, does not know the sower of the seed and the seed that falls on the stony soil and on the fertile soil? Who among us does not know the size of the mustard seed in the great tree that grows out of it? Or the parable of the yeast that grows like, like the spread of heaven or the parable of the vineyard? Who among us in this group doesn't see and know this? So that the authority that is appealed to is what is called in the Buddhist tradition by my teacher, the one who knows, that place of wisdom within us. 
And maybe we know, or maybe it knows somehow. There's some knowing between us. Um, another story for you. A small and carefree young girl who lived at the edge of a forest loved to wander there, and one day she became quite lost. It grew dark and the little girl didn't return home and her parents got worried and they began calling for the girl, searching the forest, and it grew darker. The parents returned home and called neighbors and people from town and they all went to help search for the girl. Meanwhile, the little girl wandered far in the forest, became worried and anxious in the dark because she couldn't find her way home, trying one path after another and finally became more and more tired. Coming to a clearing in the forest, she lay down by a big rock and fell asleep. The frantic parents, the neighbors, scoured the forest, called and called the girl's name, but no avail. Many of the searchers left by morning exhausted, but the girl's father continued through the whole night. And sometime early in that morning, the father came to the clearing where the little girl was lying asleep. He saw the little girl at a distance, ran toward her, yelling, making a great noise on the branches, as she awoke to his sound, and as soon as the little girl saw her father, with a great shout of joy, she exclaimed, Daddy, I found you. <laughs> so in this one who knows, one might ask, who is finding whom? Maybe it is there, and it finds us as much as we find it. Now, in the Buddhist teachings, it is very much the same as Brother David speaks about. There are only a few basics that are repeated over and over for your own examination. The teachings of impermanence, that as you sit this evening in meditation and feel the breath and the thoughts and the feelings and the cool air that comes in and the warmth of the room growing, you begin to realize that Life itself is a river, a process of change that cannot be stopped. That it can't be grasped no matter how hard you want to hold on to your body or another person or make things not change. That in that sense, it is selfless. We don't own even this body and mind. It is a process of its own life, interdependent with all life. What if we live from that simple realization of impermanence? What if we actually believed it? I mean, there it is. And lived each day knowing that the last one was gone and the next not yet to come. And let go of the past and the future and lived in the reality of the present. Change our lives. Or another basic teaching from the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering. There's a cause for suffering, human suffering. And there's an end to it and a path to that end. And in the simplest way, it says that our grasping and attachments create our suffering. Otherwise, there's just pleasure and pain and light and dark. But our human suffering comes from greed and grasping and, and aversion and anger and kind of struggling with it. This is the cause of our suffering. So my teacher Ajahn Chah used to wander around the monastery at times, come up to people especially if it looked like they were having a hard time. And he would say, uh, are you having a hard day? <laughs> and if they said yes, he would say, oh, must be very attached, and then smile and kind of walk away. 
And if they would say no, he'd say, oh, very fine, enjoy your day. That simple. It's a little bit like the red light, the idiot light, they call them on the dashboard of the car, you know. When you're suffering, the little light comes on and it says, ah, must be very attached. It's that directly wired, okay? And just knowing this, knowing impermanence or knowing about not grasping is enough to lead us to freedom. Freedom in the body, freedom in the heart, freedom in the mind. To know that we can live in this changing world and love it and care for it, but not grasp or possess it or struggle with it. That we can manifest compassion and manifest this life without identification. This is mine and that's someone else's and the grasping that creates suffering. Now one might say, well, this is fine, but what about all these other teachings? I mean, there are these shelves of books on Buddhist teachings in those bookstores. Rebirth and karma and the realms of existence and Buddhist psychology and the seven factors of enlightenment and the eightfold path and the 52 mental factors and the 89 kinds of consciousness, you know, and the, all of that stuff. And what happens when you die? All these, the Tibetan Book of the Dead and all that stuff. Ah. There's a great and brief account in the Buddhist texts of a man who comes to see the Buddha, bows, pays his respect, and says, are you a Buddha? The Buddha says, yes, that's, that's my job or whatever he says, you know, my role. And then he said, good, because I have some questions for you. And the main question I have is, what happens when you die? So, I mean, it's a very legitimate question, isn't it? And then the Buddha looks back and says, and what makes you ask this question? He wants to know the intention of that question. And the man says, because if I know the answer to that question, then I will know how to live this life. And the Buddha said, well, let me ask you then, sir, a question or two. If it happens that you have many lifetimes, that you die and are reborn and die and are reborn, according to your karma as is taught in some systems, how then would you want to live your life? And the man thought about it and he said, I'd want to be very attentive to be careful what I do now and also to make the seeds for wakefulness or wisdom in other lives. I'd want to be generous because the pleasure it gives now and also it would be the seeds for abundance or generosity to come back in other lives. Um, I'd want to be compassionate because it feels wonderful to do that now and it would be the seeds for others to love me in future lives. The Buddha said, just so, my friend. Now suppose, he said, that you only have one life. Suppose this is it. How then would you live? And he thought about it. He said, well, I'd want to be very attentive because if this is the only life, I'd really want to live each day fully. And I'd want to be generous because it feels good and you can't take it with you. And I'd want to be compassionate because if this is all that we have, things become so precious. And he answered in the same way. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend. So all of this 
is not about belief. All these teachings are a direct pointing to freedom, to what is called the sure heart's release, the reality or truth that we as human beings can be free. It is our true nature, our Buddha nature, to become free in the face of longing, love, fear, um, confusion, all of that freedom is possible. Now recently, in the last few days, um, a woman who was a member of this community for many years, Maxine Shear, died. Um, those of you who knew her, she's on staff in Barry at the center in Massachusetts for a time and cooked for many retreats here and been quite involved in meditation, among other things. And she was 71 or 72, and she had a very peaceful death. She died of cancer. They thought she was going to die a year and a half or two years ago, but she wasn't ready yet. So she did a lot of other things, and then when she was ready, she died. And it was really wonderful to visit her or to have her come here for the last classes a few weeks ago and be together. Um, and she said that without the practice that she'd done, the years of meditation training, she really would have been lost in this process. What to do? Frightened? Confused? But because she had it, it made a great difference. Anna Douglas, one of the other teachers from the Spirit Rock community, went over to spend some time with her last, uh, about a week ago, right before she went into her last couple of days, few days of coma. And I said, how was she that last day she was speaking? She said, we just laughed a lot. We had such a good time kind of talking about old things, connecting. And then she looked at me and she said, you know, I know I'm dying. I wish you could come with me. Maybe we could do it together. Anna said no one had ever invited her to that before. She died with the love of her family around her, her children and her grandchildren, and very wise family. She died um, when, when her pain came. She knew how to be with pain because she had sat with that in her meditation, could soften and work with it. And when fear came, she said, oh, I've worked with fear a lot in my life. She didn't have so much fear. It came and she understood how the mind worked, so she was able to work with fear. She did a lot of loving-kindness and forgiveness practice, compassion at the end, to really finish with her children, her grandchildren, the people around her that had loved her in beautiful ways. And when I was sitting with her body just after she died, her daughters and other family members around, one of her daughters spoke so beautifully, they said, you know, we had Maxine here in the living room by this great big picture window in the house in Oakland. And outside the window is a huge tree um, and all this light kind of pouring in on her. She died peacefully. And her daughter said when Maxine first came to live with us these last many weeks, getting sicker and sicker, that tree had all its leaves on it. And then over the course of these weeks, the leaves have turned color and then they've dropped till there's only a few yellow leaves left. And I looked at the tree behind her and at her, and I realized it was so natural for the tree to lose its leaves. And wasn't it so natural for ourselves? And then I looked at my mother, and I saw she had um, t 
turned yellow from uh, uremia in the end. Of, and I saw that she was the color of the last leaves on the tree and that she too had just fallen to the ground. The key to wisdom is very simple. It is opening our eyes and our heart with mindfulness, with awareness to the nature of this life just in front of us. It's so simple. As the third Zen ancestor writes, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and hatred are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Or the Tao calls it seeing with eyes unclouded by longing. It's the moments when we see life, this moment, any moment, just as it is, without all the ways it's supposed to be. And it reveals its secret to us, and the wisdom of life shows itself. And from that comes a natural respect and caring or compassion. It's like Aldous Huxley when he died. Many of you have heard this story. There he is on his last, on his deathbed, his last words. People talking to him and saying, well, Aldous, you've traveled around the world. You've studied and written and been with all these great spiritual teachers. You know, what is it that you would leave for us as your departing wisdom? And he said, it's embarrassing to say. It's embarrassing to say it all seems to come down to simply being kinder. His last words. To see this world without rejecting a single thing. Doesn't mean we can't respond to injustice or when someone is hungry we can't feed them. But to see it for what it is. Can we practice in that way? And it's a question for us. What in our own practice is unacceptable? Are we unable or unwilling to open our eyes to or open our hearts to? That is so anyway, whether we like it or not. Can we sit with that and say, yes, this too is the truth? I don't mean following every thought and desire. That would get you in a lot of trouble, probably. You may have tried that already. <laughs> but honoring it and knowing each for what it is so that that place of wisdom and compassion can say, yes, this is so. No, that's, that's not so. Can we open to it all? This quality of freedom can be found in any moment. The moment, sit with Maxine and breathe with her, as some of us had, and just be present for whatever was so. Freedom in any moment, in birth, in death, and in all the things in between. And this freedom from grasping is not an indifference or a removal from life but an open-hearted presence. The practice of mindfulness is an opening of body, mind, heart, and feelings with kindness, with compassion, to experience the truth, just what is so, 
now. Zen Master Dogen, he writes, truth is perfect and complete in itself. It is not something newly discovered. It has always existed. Truth is not far away. It is ever present. It is not something to be attained since not one of your steps leads away from it. Do not follow the ideas of others, but learn to listen to the voice within your heart. Your own body and mind will become clear and you will realize the unity of all things. To actualize the blessedness of meditation, you should practice with pure intention and determination. Sit in a cushion in a manner comfortable as possible. Hold your body erect without leaning left or right. Simply sit with awareness. In your meditation, you yourself become the mirror reflecting the solution of your problems. The human mind has absolute freedom within its true nature. You can attain this freedom in a moment. You do not work for it, but allow the presence to be the freedom itself. There are thousands upon thousands of those who have practiced meditation and obtained these fruits. Do not doubt the possibilities because of the simplicity of the method. If you cannot find the truth right where you are, where else do you expect to find it? Life is short and no one knows what the next moment will bring. Open your mind and your heart while you have the opportunity. Gain the treasures of wisdom, which then you can share naturally and abundantly with others, bringing happiness to all you touch. So that's a thousand or fifteen hundred years ago, but it's pretty much the same directions one would have in this moment in Woodacre in California. That simple. It's a simple discipline over and over. Gandhi talked about blessed monotony, washing the dishes, going to sleep, brushing your teeth in the morning, you know, putting on your clothes, taking the cycles of life as the place that teaches us wisdom. It's so strange, you know, people look for mystery and you go in those spiritual bookstores, teachers who can levitate and those who live for years and years and years and special states and people who make things appear, you know, out of nothing and so forth. Everything appears out of nothing. I mean, it does, it's fantastic. Form comes trooping out of emptiness, as Rumi says. And so do your thoughts. Where do your thoughts come from? And your feelings and your perceptions. And then it vanishes like that. That's the mystery. What happened to this morning? Monday morning, where did it go? It's back with the pharaohs in Egypt, right? And it's back with, you know, the age of the dinosaurs or the Great Depression or the Napoleonic Wars or um, Bach's greatest um, musical performance, it went back where it came from, disappeared, comes out of nowhere. The day appears, it does its dance, and it's gone. That's mysterious. Or talking, isn't it bizarre? Here's this hole at the end of our body tube. 
with these bones that hang down, right? And oh, we shape it, and these muscles make things kind of make weird shapes, and then I can say words, you know, pink elephant. Oh yeah, picture it, really big. And there, all the whole imagination of our consciousness is changed. Stunning. Ice cream sundae. (laughs) Champagne. So people want mystery. Roger Walsh, who is a dear friend and a also a teacher and member of this community, written many books on various aspects of spiritual practice, although he is trained as a psychologist and a psychiatrist both, um, written on shamanism, Buddhism, Christian mystical teachings and so forth. So anyway, being the scholar that he is, one time he decided to read through the Encyclopedia of World Religions Um, to see what he could learn about all these things he'd been practicing. And he read through all these volumes about Zoroastrianism, I guess that was at the end, and Ahura Mazda maybe was at the beginning, you know, and Manichaeism was in the middle, um, and ancient Sumeria was sort of two-thirds of the way through, and, you know, 14 kinds of mystical Christianity, and um, Vajrayana Buddhism and Pure Land Buddhism and um, Shiite and Sunni Muslims and all of these, you know, one after another. And each one had millions of adherents, people who believed that. Millions of people, often for hundreds of years. And they were all systems that described good and evil and the creation of the world and so forth, although somewhat different. And I said, well, you read through all of that. What did you learn? He said what was most striking after reading all of those different descriptions from all those hundred religions was that they were words that human beings had spoken or written placed as a screen upon the mystery. And that there is this great mystery which is us, which is life. And then we have ways to describe it that we feel a little bit better. Oh, thank you, you know, that give a little sense of relief in the face of what's so awesome. When the Buddha was asked for his most central teachings, and the word Buddha itself means the awakened one, he said, you know, are you a god, or are you a, a, um, a, a wizard, a magician? A, a, a fantastic yogi, a human being, whatever, and the Buddha said, I am awake. The word Buddha means one who is awake. And so that freedom that is discovered, which is our own true nature, our own Buddha nature, is at the center of this awakening. When we pay attention to this life and see it for what it is, it changes, it moves, it cannot be possessed our hearts become at rest. We become peaceful, free, awake. It's that simple. Zen master Nyogen Senzaki said his last words of teaching, do not put any false heads above your own. That's a Japanese expression that means don't take everybody else's ideas and carry them inside there somewhere. Do not put any false heads above your own. Then moment 
after moment, watch your own steps closely. These are my last teachings to you. Just be where you are. See what you know to be true in the most direct way. Now, I'm also struck by the part of this mystery that is, although it's very, very simple, really is, freedom is simple, love is simple. Even though it's simple, it's not easy in some way. It's easy for some moments and then more difficult in others. It's really true for us. Suzuki Roshi liked to talk about this. He said, after you've practiced for a while, you realize that it's not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. Even though you try quite hard, the progress you make is always little by little. It's not like going out in a thunder shower where you get soaked by the rain. In a fog, you don't know you're getting wet, but as you keep walking, you get wet little by little by little. And then if your mind has some idea of how it's supposed to go, you say, oh, this pace is terrible. But actually it's not, for when you get wet in the fog, it is very difficult to dry yourself. So it's simple, but it takes the willingness in this moment again to be present, and in this one, and in this one, so that the habits or tendencies of this body of fear, of this small sense of self, that has gone on for a long time in some of us, so that those habits, when they arise, get met with this wisdom and say, that's okay, but it's not so. What's so is just what is here, just now. One of the things that always strikes me is the grace and the directness and the simplicity of the wisest of teachers. They tend to speak and act in the simplest way. Deepama, this woman in Calcutta I studied with, she would ask, you know, how is your mother? Not how's your meditation, how's your mother, how's your father, how's your family? Kind of the Jewish, Bengali Jewish mother, you know. <laughs> Concern about how your family. Or my teacher Ajahn Chah, somebody said, would you give us the teachings? One day he said, certainly, if you do good things, good will result really simple. Of this cartoon here that shows a man sitting on his couch and the dog at his feet and the man's reading a newspaper and the dog's looking up kind of plaintively. It looks like it's being slightly ignored. And the dog is speaking and says, am I doing something wrong? You don't say good dog to me anymore. <laughs> It doesn't matter what they say in the end. It's not that somebody says, oh, there, you're doing a good job. You're being a spiritual person. You're doing it right. I mean, we like that appreciation, of course. But in the end, what we're speaking about is discovering who we are. What is this true and beautiful freedom that is our birthright? And it means being true to this moment, true to ourself, true to what we really know. E.E. E. Cummings, the poet, to be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best to make you everybody else is the hardest battle which every human being must fight. Mm. 
to be true to ourself, true to what we know. A couple more stories. I'm an artist. When my daughter was born after a very difficult labor, we had to have an emergency cesarean operation. We were very worried. I was there at the hospital. I remember talking with the doctor about what I did for a living. The doctor, knowing I was an artist, confided in me and said, I wish I'd been a musician because I love to play concert piano. Later, after my wife had the delivery, the doctor came out with the good news that my wife was fine and I had a brand new healthy baby girl. So we were standing there and I was smiling from the good news and another doctor walked up and, um, to the physician who just completed this surgery and said, um, excuse me, doctor, I just wanted to tell you that you perform brilliant in, in, brilliantly in there and it was an honor to assist you. He walked away and I turned to the doctor. I said, now tell me the truth. You just brought a new life into the world. You saved another life. And you've had one of your colleagues tell you it's an honor to be in your presence. For heaven's sake, can you honestly say you wish you'd been a musician? And the doctor smiled back and said, it went pretty well in there. He laughed a little more. He said, and I know exactly why too because this morning I got up early and for one hour I played Chopin at the piano. <laughs> Mother Teresa puts it this way, I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time. I can only feed one person at a time. Just one, one, one. So you begin, I begin, I pick up one person. Maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. The whole work is only a drop in the ocean, but if I didn't put the drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. Same thing for you, same thing in your family, in the church or community that you belong. Just begin, one, 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 that simple. So this is really staying true to that one who knows in us, to that simple wisdom that knows how to live. And sometimes we get a little bit anxious. It's a little scary. Well, well if I really live from what I know, <laughs> um, things might have to be different in here, might actually have some life changes based on that. If I live from that place of freedom, that place of compassion that I know, it can be a little disconcerting. The first year psychology students in a college classroom in introductory psychology had a section of their class on humanistic and spiritual psychology, Abraham Maslow and those others, in which they were taught Maslow's description of what he called self-actualization or coming into that wisdom of our own being, or it was his word really for awakening or enlightenment. And in the essay exam that followed that section in the psychology class, after testing the students' knowledge about different things, the professor wrote, um, after reading about enlightenment or self-actualization, does this interest you? Because wanting to know. 
and was rather surprised at a number of the negative responses he got back. One student wrote, no, I wouldn't, because I wouldn't want to be as rude as those people tend to be. <laughs> and another student who wrote back about whether they wanted to be self-actualized, no, because there would be no more mountains to climb, no highs and lows, no more excitement. And another student who wrote, yes, maybe, but not till much later, maybe when I die. I want to have fun before then. <laughs> But it's really a mistake, of course, because the only place that we can love is in the present. To love in the past is a memory, and to love in the future is a fantasy. The only place we can love, the only place we can really be alive, instead of less excitement in mountains, in some ways there's more of life. Maybe we're only given 60 or 80 years but we can live those years and not be so present. Or we can live those years and have twice as much, three times as much, just because we're alive. We're really present and really free to let go of that last moment and be here for the next. So it's simple and immediate and organic. And it asks our participation, our practice, our willingness, the openness of compassion, the attention of mindfulness, that practice. And one of the things that you have to keep in mind is that once you start, you really can't stop. In a sense, it's too late for you all. I mean, what are you going to do? Go back and cultivate delusion and greed and anger? I mean, one falls into it, but you just can't go back anymore. Hmm. I like the spirit that comes through Zen Master Ryokan, the beloved poet of Japan. He writes, My life may appear melancholy. Traveling through this world, I've entrusted myself to the heavens. In my sack, three quarts of rice. By the hearth, a bundle of firewood. If someone asks what is the mark of enlightenment or illusion, I cannot say. Praise and blame, wealth and honor are nothing but dust. As the evening rain falls, I sit in my hermitage and stretch out my feet in answer. Returning to my hermitage after filling my rice bowl, now only the gentle glow of twilight, surrounded by mountain peaks and thinly scattered leaves, in the forest an autumn crow flies east. Just that simple image, the trees, the crow, the dimness of the twilight, the sack of rice, things as they are. Let's sit for a few minutes with things as they are here for us.
And as you sit quietly, ask yourself this simple question. What do you know? What do I know? And the deepest wisdom of this heart that is true and that if I were to live from, I would live from great wisdom. Let me ask for just a couple of minutes and then we'll end with a chant. Hmm. What is it that someone would say, this is something I know to be true, no matter what anybody else would say about it? Anything you'd add to that list I had, please? I know nothing. I know nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Are you sure? <laughs> It's a hard act to follow. Please. Life is a precious gift. Yes, thank you. Yes, please. That all things are interconnected. That all things are interconnected. Thank you. That change is the only constant. Change is the only constant. That love is what matters. That love is what matters. That fear is a surefire indication that I'm walking down the path of growth. The path of growth. That fear is a surefire indication that I'm walking down the path of growth. Yeah, that's right. When fear is there, it's like a little sign that says about to grow. <laughs> if, you, if you walk down it. That's right. Yes. I'm beginning to see indications that whatever it is that I want to be, I will be in the end. Indications that whatever it is I want to be, I will be in the end. Thank you. Yes. Thoughts and emotions are spices that we add to our experience. Thoughts and emotions are spices that we add to our experience? To our life experience. Yes, to our life experience. Hmm. Yes. But no matter what happens, in the end, it's okay. Ah. No matter what happens, in the end, it's okay. 
That's a good place to end then. <laughs> Since it's okay. A couple of announcements. One is an apology. I didn't notice there were a couple of notes I were given about interior lights left on in cars. Usually it's okay for this long. It's not like headlights. They'll probably be all right, but um, if not, um, let us know. We'll try to help you. That's probably okay. Um, I was faxed something, but it didn't come out on the fax machine, so unfortunately I can just read you the top of it, but it's still worthy of a note. Um, and that is, this is from the Religious Witness with Homeless People in San Francisco. There is, as some of you may know, a whole movement in clearing out uh, not only Golden Gate Park, but um, really something that's happened over the last years in the society um, of an unwillingness to deal with uh, some of the members of the society, some of us who have the, the gravest problems and putting people on the streets. And it wasn't so, and it is now. And so people of good hearts are uh, asking that this be attended to. It's really important. Um, and so there are going to be a number of uh, demonstrations around Thanksgiving time um, on behalf of uh, people without homes in the Bay Area. And if you want, you could call the Witness for Homeless People, 885-6401. I'll leave the number written here for anyone who likes. Um, from the Interfaith Community, and that's from Adele Brockman. I wish I had more of the exact times. We're coming up toward uh, Thanksgiving time, then the sort of the rush of holiday season and so forth. Um, remember to take a little bit of time to do nothing. It's so helpful just to stop periodically, to sit or to do some walking meditation outside if the weather is allowing it, or just something that brings you back so that you can live from that place of knowing. So the chant will end up with very simple chant. Um, tonight I think we'll do Om Mani Padme Hum, which is the Sanskrit meaning is Om is the universal sound, like the sound of the ocean that holds all sounds. Mani means crystal or jewel. Padma is the lotus, Padme. Um, and Hum is a kind of exclamation, may it be so. So it's the chant that means um, uh, the jewel is in the lotus, and it's a, really the compassion chant from throughout the Himalayas. You see it written on the walls of monasteries and carved into the rocks and in prayer wheels, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum. Um, and even in um, the graffiti there, it's terrific. Imagine, you know, graffiti of compassion for all beings spray painted on the walls. Um, and in particular, I'd like you also to keep in mind as we chant a little bit um, Maxine Shear, wherever you are, Maxine will chant a little for you. And a boy named Joey who has leukemia and may only be around for s some weeks ahead, I was just told about. The jewel in the lotus, the meaning is that the jewel is the mind and the lotus is the heart. 
so that that clarity of mind, the crystal of the mind, rests in the heart of compassion. We see with clarity and we hold the world in the heart of compassion. So we'll chant for a little bit and then we'll go out into the cool, dark autumn evening. Om Mani Padme Hum. And each time you chant it, you can think of someone you would envelop with compassion. Om Mani Padme Hum. Om Mani Padme Thank you for your donations and support for Spirit Rock. Thank you for driving politely as you leave in the dark. Come again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.